Welcome back. Our final hour here on a Friday afternoon as we get set to head into the Thanksgiving long weekend. We still got a few other things to get to here this afternoon. We can get back to more of your phone calls as well here, 403-974-8255. Our next guest in this next topic, I think, addresses some really relevant issues. It applies to our criminal justice system. Now, I know Canadians are, are certainly concerned about these issues right now after long periods of decline. We've seen crime rates inch back up in recent years. Uh, certainly more recently, we've been dealing with a lot of issues around uh, addiction and and, uh, you know, related uh, social issues, mental health issues, and I think this all ties together. So what needs to be done? What needs to change? Well, our next guest is making the case for an overhaul of Canada's criminal justice system. Uh, Benjamin Perrin is a professor of law at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at UBC, was a criminal justice advisor to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and is the author of a new book called Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial, Ben Perrin, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Rob. Now, let me ask you, first of all, because, you know, this sort of speaks to your own personal journey on some of these issues, because this, this isn't a book you were, would have written 10 years ago. No, it really wasn't. I mean, I was uh, in the prime minister's office in Ottawa uh, advancing the, the tough on crime agenda a decade ago. And, you know, now I'm writing a book, which I think is a real, not only a real 180, it just proposes a totally new approach for how we need to address crime in our society. I mean, everyone agrees the system we have right now isn't working for anyone. And I think it's time we take a very different approach. Well, how did you get to that, that position then, or the, the belief that we needed a much different approach? What prompted you to, to reconsider this? Well, I actually started this project about five years ago. It was a, a letter I received in the mail. Uh, I teach criminal law. You know, I get letters sometimes from members of the public. Many people can't afford a lawyer, so they're desperate, right? And uh, I assume that's what it was, just someone looking for legal advice. And it was an eight-page letter from an Indigenous man being incarcerated here in BC. And he didn't ask for any help. That would have been easy. I would have just, you know, referred him to someone else. I wasn't practicing law at the time. And he didn't do that. He just wanted to share his story. And and it hit me like a like a ton of bricks. Uh, one of the lines in his letter, just describing the the things he was experiencing, he said, "If you want to turn a man into an animal, put him in a cage, without the resources to build himself back up." And around the same time, uh, Justice Canada was launching this public consultation. They they asked one of these questions was, "If if you could design a new criminal justice system from scratch, what would it look like?" And so that was really the spark of this project. And it took me, you know, talking to people right across the country, survivors of violent crime, uh, offenders. Rob, I talked to people, the lowest level offense was someone who'd keyed a car all the way up to people who had committed horrific sexual offenses, uh, were in prison for murder and everything in between. And we also talked to people who, who are corrections officers in the police departments, in the First Nations Health Authority, people who work in, in issues like mental health and addiction and substance use. And that journey really was the the thing that changed my views. Hearing from people directly impacted by the system and and hearing what their ideas were for a new and better approach was totally mind-blowing, really. Well, to that question then, and, you know, back to, as you noted, I mean, if we were designing a new system from scratch, what would it look like? How do we have a better system? What is it we expect from the criminal justice system? How are we measuring success or measuring whether it's working? That's the crazy thing is we we don't. Um, so, you know, there's like report cards on, on public schools, there's healthcare, we have metrics that we judge like wait times and things like that. We also know how much those systems cost taxpayers. If you can believe it, no one has added up how much the criminal justice system even costs us. I had a student try to do it. And the, a conservative figure is it's about at least $25 billion a year. And yet, uh, until we put out a report card on the criminal justice system a few years ago, there were no metrics. So, 
from my perspective, I think a key metric for the success of a criminal justice system should be things like people not continuing to reoffend, right? If someone does commit a crime, that that person would uh, would would receive support and assistance so that they wouldn't continue to harm other people. Uh, I would also think things like victims uh, participating in the system and what's their levels of satisfaction? What's the level of public confidence in the system? How much does it cost? Is it getting good value for money? We don't ask any of these questions. Instead, we pass criminal justice policy based on the latest news story, uh, largely politically driven. So when I started looking at the research around what works and what doesn't, it, it was pretty shocking. Uh, it, it turns out that there's actually no correlation between having more police and lower crime. There's there's really no connection at all. Uh, we don't get safer through more police. So why is that? Well, police are reactive, right? They respond after the fact. It, things got even more disturbing when we looked at the research on incarceration. and there has been dozens and dozens of reports uh, dating back to the 1950s involving over 300 inmates in 300,000 inmates in Canada. And the conclusion of that study is in fact that prisons should not be used with the expectation of reducing criminal behavior. In fact, incarceration increases the risk of reoffending. So if more police and more prisons and more punishment isn't the answer, you know, what is? That's what really then drove our research. Well, what about punishment? I, I hear that a lot from people. It's it's sort of the perception that, you know, you do something, you need to pay a price. And and more often than not, it's seen as, as though people aren't paying a, an appropriate price for what they did. Where, where does punishment fit in? So I, I start out by thinking about the person who was harmed, right? So if, if someone was, was robbed or beaten or their family member was killed, the way that our system conceives of this right now is it, it doesn't treat that as a wrong against them. It says crime is a wrong against the state. So the survivors of crime are the people who I would ask Rob, I would say like, what should happen? Like this happened to you. What do you think should happen? But our system doesn't do that, right? It treats them as if they were a, a piece of evidence. And it's kind of incredible, but when the victimologists first started doing their research in the 1970s, they found that victims of crime are even less less satisfied with the criminal justice system than the offenders who hurt them. Isn't that insane? Yeah. And only a third of crime gets reported to police. With sexual offenses, it's like 5%, so only one in 20. So survivors have completely given up. And when we interviewed survivors of crime and the research that do broader studies have, have confirmed this as well, by and large, they're not looking for punishment. What they want is they want information. They want to know what's happening. They want to be participants in the process. And they want to have some meaningful outcome that matters to them. And I was told time and again that that is not what they're seeing in our criminal justice system. Instead, it treats them with with disdain often. It mistreats them. It, it causes them, in fact, even more harm than the crime itself in some cases. So if our focus is on punishment, um, you know, let's get out the stockade and we could go back to lashing people. If our if our goal is to have uh, just outcomes that that's, that survivors are calling for, if our goal is to stop, continue to have people reoffend. Um, I think that leads us to a different path. The reason I call this new approach a new transformative justice vision is that I believe the goal of our justice system, the primary goal should be to transform the trauma that people who are victims experience as well as the trauma that the people who harmed them had experienced so that we don't continue to transmit it. So we break these cycles of, of, uh, of suffering and abuse. So how do we do that? I mean, are, are we talking about addressing so-called root causes, how much of this involves, you know, addressing issues around mental health or addiction? Like, where, where do we need to go? So we obviously need to deal with immediate harms happening today, but we also do need to take that broader outlook that you're, you're talking about. So in my book, Indictment, I set out sort of seven key 
uh, aspects of a new transformative justice vision. And they range from long-term measures uh, all the way to immediate things that will help keep us safe today. So an example of a longer-term measure, when we look at, at preventing harm in our society, the first place we got to start is protecting our kids. It turns out that children who experience uh, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, that they are 50% more likely to harm others later in life. But the other thing is they're also more likely to become victims. They're eight times more likely to be sexually abused as adults if they were sexually abused as kids. So there are uh, evidence-based approaches to do this. Um, there's also something called the 70-30 campaign I believe Canada should join. Its goal is to reduce childhood abuse by 70% by the year 2030. And some of the ways you do that, one of the programs I talk about is called the Nurse Family Partnership. It pairs up uh, nurses with uh, families from the time that uh, that the mother's pregnant all the way up to two years of age. So it's an early childhood intervention. They're in the home talking about, you know, what's the impact of substance use on an unborn child? Uh, how do you discipline a child in a healthy way? Connecting them with, you know, community resources. The, the crazy thing is when they, they track this in a randomized control trial, so they compared kids that were in the program with other families that weren't. When they go back, you know, 13 years later, these kids are 15 they found there was an, a 79% reduction in child abuse. Those kids were spared that abuse because of this early intervention. And they were 81% lower criminal convictions. The, 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 the dollars and cents of this are also incredible. The Washington State Institute for Public Policy, which studied one of these programs, found an $18,000 a year net return to taxpayers. Why? Well, you're foregoing all these social services, healthcare, and criminal justice expenses. So that's an example of like a long-term way to transform trauma that will both protect kids today and prevent crime tomorrow. It is long term, as you say, and and in the meantime, uh, we we have seen uh, you know crime rates rates rising. We we do have issues around disorder, public safety that I think people want addressed. So, I think longer term, sure. I mean, if we were were addressing these issues, we'd have less problems down the road. What, what do we do in the short term? Exactly. So we've got a really complicated set of issues today. It includes mental health, substance use, homelessness, poverty. These have all been kind of caught up in the system. So instead of using, uh, you know, police and prisons to deal with these social issues, we need to take public health approaches to them. So an example of this is when I compare the cost of things like prison, shelters and supportive housing. Supportive housing is a, is a fraction, it's the cheapest option. And it also reduces the involvement of people in the criminal justice system and, and it protects them from being victimized. When we look at policing, um, mental health issues are huge right now in our in our communities and they get caught up in the criminal justice system all too often. One of the things that I argue for is in every community in Canada, we need to have another option when there's someone in mental health distress or when there's someone who's intoxicated or someone who's homeless who's sleeping in your you know, business's front door or outside your apartment building. Because right now, if you call 911 or a non-police emergency line, first of all, someone may not even show up. OK, so that leads to real dissatisfaction in the community. Right. Um, and people talk about that. Why is no one showing up? If they do show up, chances are it's going to be the police. Right now, what other communities have started to do and some have been doing it for a long time are are having 24 seven non-police mobile crisis response teams. These are people who are specially trained. Usually there's someone who's got a health experience like a paramedic combined with a social worker or a trauma counselor. These people show up so they then de-escalate the situation and between 15 to 20 percent of all those calls they deal with, right? The police don't show up. This is going to save lives too. We know that because 68 uh, percent of people who die in encounters with police were experiencing mental health 
and substance use issues. So that's an example of, of a new type of institution. Uh, another thing that we really need to do, there's a lot of talk right now about the revolving door criminal justice system, right? Yeah. About repeat violent offenders. We've right. got a, you know, j uh, jail not bail is a slogan we're hearing, that kind of thing. My, my problem with that is we know that people come out of prison worse off. I talked to people who described that in their lives and they witnessed it in others' lives. People who literally said, they had to spend their, their time at night, you know, sharpening their, their shank and looking over their shoulder or joining a street gang to protect themselves while incarcerated. Of course, when they come out, you know, this is kind of wild. Most people enter prison, they're unemployed at arrest. That's the statistics. And even when they follow those folks 14 years afterwards, the median income of a federally incarcerated person is zero dollars. OK, so we are setting people up to fail. Uh, I looked at what they did in Norway. They took a totally different approach. They had a bunch of prison riots and some guards were killed back in the, the 90s. And they decided we're going to try something differently. We're going to have a more innovative, humane approach to incarceration. Our goal is people leave prison better than when they entered. So they reoriented their whole system. Because look, some people have to be separated from society because they're a risk to us. But the question that I want to ask is the same one they ask in Norway. Uh, what kind of a neighbor do you want to have? right? Because they're moving into our communities. I live in downtown Vancouver. I grew up in Calgary. I remember in both cities seeing those warnings. You've probably seen them like warning high risk offender in the community. We're like, what do you yeah. mean there's a high risk offender in the community, a sex offender? My kid's going to school here. Like, what do you mean high risk offender? What, what have you been doing with them for the last four, five, six, seven, eight years inside? Like, did they get any help? And now they're here and we're told there's nothing that can be done. So I think that's just crazy. And instead, I want to see us do what, what they do in Norway. And there's a prison called Halden Prison. It's not a minimum security. It's a maximum security facility. So the outside of it looks like a traditional prison. Inside, it's totally different. It looks like the Apple campus or a you know, university campus. The, the bedrooms look like a college dorm. There's you know beach volleyball courts and pottery classes. But like, would we dare to put up with that sort of thing? I say we should, and I'll tell you why. And that's because people come out of a place like Halden, they get mental health support, counseling, and they have vocational training. The, the, the results are why I'm pushing this. It's not just because it's a humanitarian idea. It's very pragmatic. Their reoffending rates were around ours. 60 to 70% of people used to reoffend under the old punitive model. When they took this more humane approach, that dropped to just 20% of people reoffending. So if we can either, we've got a choice as a society. We can either choose to go the punishment, harsh penalty route and spend a lot of money doing it and continue to have those folks eventually get out of prison and put us all at risk, or we could try to do something different. We could try to have places where people are separated from society for a time where they get better, not worse, and they leave without being a risk to us all. I mean, you, you've seen, you know, Ottawa from the inside. I mean, you, you understand the politics of this. I, I think you know where where public opinion more or less is at on those questions. So, w what about that as I guess an obstacle to getting where you think we need to go? Yeah, I think politics is quite frankly the single biggest challenge here. Uh, I've, I launched this this project this week in Ottawa on Parliament Hill. Uh, we had several events with over you know 200 people there. Uh, what I'll tell you is, I spoke with with conservative uh, members of Parliament staffers. You know, kind of. You know, informally, uh, the event we had on Parliament Hill was co-hosted by Liberal NDP and Green MPs. We had cabinet ministers showing up, people from the community. L bottom line, people are fed up. They don't know what to do. So our options are we keep tinkering with the status quo that doesn't work, right? It, it isn't working, and it's just getting worse outcomes. We go back to the tough on crime approach, which, you know, I like I said, I've been there, done that. I was in Ottawa. I was Prime Minister Stephen Harper's lead criminal justice advisor. So 
I, I used to think that was the way to go. And I can tell you it, it isn't. It, it's costly. It costs taxpayers a lot of money. It's ineffective because it leads to this ongoing revolving door. And it's deadly. It's deadly to Canadians. And it's also, quite frankly, deadly to people we lock up, right? People who have substance use disorders uh, when they're imprisoned and they come out, like their chances of overdosing are 50 times higher than in the community. So I think we need to approach this a bit rationally, to be honest. I'm speaking at the Fraser Institute next week talking about that question of, are we getting good value for our public safety money? Mm -hmm. I think it's an important question we need to ask. I don't care who, who you support. It's your money. You know, I'm in Vancouver here. We voted for a kind of tougher on crime mayor recently. Uh, he promised to hire 100 new police officers. No guarantee that's going to help us at all. In fact, no evidence it will. But we're paying for it now. Uh, I got my tax bill, so did everyone else here. Right. It's the highest uh, tax increase we've had in, in decades. So, you know, not every city is buying it. Both Toronto and Chicago had a choice recently to do something similar and vote for tough on crime candidates who really all they can offer is more police on the streets. Um, and they voted against that. Uh, you know, some places have kind of wised up to the tough on crime agenda. It uh, it does win votes. But when we start to unpack it, we see it. It, it doesn't work uh, and it's ineffective. So, you know, I think the status quo we have right now is, is a total failure. Uh, and I think going back to tough on crime is, is really only going to make things uh, worse in the long term. And it's not going to make us safer. So we need to try a different approach. Well, it's all laid out in the book. It's called Indictment, the Criminal Justice System on Trial. Ben Perrin, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it, too. Have a great day. Well, a new hockey season is uh, more or less underway uh, for most kids. Uh, maybe some are still in the uh, tryout stage or about to get going, but uh, it's, it's back to hockey. But things might be a little different this year. Uh, so Hockey Canada has a new policy, and, and this seemed to catch a lot of people off guard. Not just not sure what to make of it off guard, but just kind of surprised that it was there at all. In fact, a statement from Hockey Calgary says this new policy wasn't even communicated uh, to them by either Hockey Canada or Hockey Alberta. Uh, this is a new policy uh, around minimum attire. It's a new policy on dressing room and changing. The rule is basically that players must be wearing a base layer in the dressing room when surrounded by at least one other person. So the base layer that a player would wear under their equipment with the expectation that there, there be something there. And that's as undressed as they will be. If they need to be undressed more than that, they would then go into, uh, you know, say, for example, a, a bathroom stall. So that certainly represents a change in a lot of ways from how dressing rooms have, have typically operated in this sport. Uh, and I know, look, when it comes to, to kids and undressing and to the adults that are there to supervise, there, there are some, some issues I think everybody needs to be sensitive to. And I think there are some policies that already exist that address that. The statement that Hockey Canada has released, and you know, they haven't spoken publicly about this. They haven't put anyone uh, out there to do interviews. Uh, there was certainly no press conference or anything. But uh, the statement from Hockey Canada uh, says, quote, all participants have the right to utilize the dressing room or appropriate and equivalent dressing room environment based on their gender identity, religious beliefs, body image concerns, and or other reasons related to their individual needs. And look, you want people to be comfortable. You want this to be a, a welcoming sport. And sure, I know, I know they're those who, who might be uncomfortable getting dressed or undressed in that kind of an environment. And, you know, maybe the fear of that might, might discourage them from playing, but there are certainly ways of accommodating that. There's nothing stopping, uh, you know, individuals or kids right now from, you know, 
getting dressed at home and just coming to the arena in full gear and leaving that way. So I think that's why this has raised some eyebrows. Like, is this necessary? What prompted this? Aren't there more important issues maybe we could be addressing when it comes to hockey and inclusiveness and addressing issues around mental health? These are certainly issues that our next guest is focused on. Brady Leibold is a founder of Puck Support, which is a nonprofit organization aimed at creating conversations around mental health and inclusive environments. More at PuckSupport.com. Brady, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so let me get your reaction to this new policy, first of all. I mean, were you surprised? Did you see a need for this? I, to be honest with you, thought it was a joke. I, When I first saw the post on social media, I quickly turned to Google to do a little further research. And when I found that, in fact, this was a new policy, I was I was pretty shocked, confused, and it just raises some questions as to why and, and mm-hmm. why this measure is this really the answer that's going to solve the problems at hand. And I just, for me as a former professional player who came up through hockey Canada and I've lived the life, I have the experience. I had a lot of positive experiences. I also had a lot of negative experiences in the hockey environment. Yeah. Like I've been there and I've lived it and I just, I simply didn't agree with it. Yeah, it's hard to make sense of it. I mean, we already have policies that address, you know, there's there's that two adult rule. You know, you must have two adults in the room if, if kids are, you know, getting dressed or undressed, those sorts of things that, that sort of provide that kind of protection. I don't know if this is about, you know, kids not wanting to be seen as, you know, by their peers as they're getting dressed. I'm, I'm not really sure, but I don't know. Is this even something that's enforceable? How how, how would this be enforced? That's, that's a really great question that I think I'll that a lot of people are, sorry there, um, mm-hmm. that a lot of people are asking is how does this be enforced? I don't know if anybody's been to some of these smaller facilities in some of the rural communities in Canada. It's already hard enough to accommodate just when there's, uh, you know, they're usually trying to kick you out of the dressing room as soon as the game's over. Right. Yeah. There's not a lot of space. Um, most of the dressing rooms that are in the smaller communities often don't even have doors on the on the bathroom stall in the dressing room. Um, I just I, it, it's going to be left to the coaches, and if the coaches don't already have enough to worry about in their volunteer position uh, to deter them from wanting to take on that role and to be those positive mentors that our youth need. Well, this is just another measure that's going to keep people from even wanting to be involved in that role. Yeah, I think that's that's an important point. I mean, when you look at some of the issues affecting the game, and I mean, some of the conversations your organizations, you know, trying trying to bring to the forefront, like, does this seem like we're we're missing, uh, you know, that we're distracting ourselves maybe from from some more important issues here? One hundred and fifty percent. That was my that was my first sort of take on it. And, you know, I've spoken to I won't use any names, but I'm fairly well connected in the hockey community. I've spoken to a lot of uh, activists, if you will, coaches, parents, players uh, from the professional level right down to to minor hockey. And I've found very little support uh, for this. Um, just in even some people um, who really, really support inclusivity. They're, they're, the questions are, how is this going to make the impact that's needed? Hockey Canada hasn't made a statement that, in my opinion, they haven't done enough to address the issues that have been prevalent in the media over the last year or so. Um, you know, in past, they've spent a lot of money, um, you know, paying 
people off in lawsuits when, in my opinion, that money should have been going to building programs and educating our youth and the coaches and the people in our game so, you know, that we can create better humans. You know, like there's there's a, a way bigger issue at hand. And for me, this is Hockey Canada just passing the buck once again to the local minor hockey associations and really putting putting it on the coaches. And like I said earlier, um, a lot of the coaches are telling me, they're like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one in there enforcing that. My question is, what if you don't enforce it? What kind of strict penalties are going to be enforced? Who's enforcing them? And I, I just, I would really like to hear Hockey Canada's take on this. There's been a lot about this in the news in the last 48 uh, to 72 hours, but we haven't heard anything from them. So what is the reasoning? And how is this measure going to make the impact that's needed moving forward to make our game and the culture of hockey better? Yeah, I mean, if they think this is necessary, I mean, you know, they need to show some leadership here. I mean, it's it's bizarre to see all the media organizations that have reached out to Hockey Canada. All they're getting is this prepackaged statement. Nobody's out there talking about this or explaining the need for this. And associations, coaches, parents, everyone's just kind of left twisting in the wind here. And, you know, not knowing what to make of this. How does this work? Why are we doing this? It's a real void here, it feels like. Yeah, and you know, I hit a lot of the parents concerned with you know having to what if, what about road games? Now kids are you know are they allowed to shower? Are they not allowed to shower? They have to shower in bathing suits, but where do they put on their bathing suits? Where do they take off their bathing suits? Yeah, and um, you know, for me, it can't be. Uh, they have measures in place with the vulnerable sector checks, and they do their due diligence when selecting personnel to be around our youth. Um, so I, I, you know, I would think that that's not the issue. It's not that the coach, they're worried about the coaches. Um, I, I think they're really grasping at straws. And for me, as somebody who, um, has lived it and been through it, I would like to myself and for others to be at the table of these conversations. They've recently hired a, a new president who has zero experience in the hockey world. As far as I know, she came over from curling and I, I'm just wondering, like, when are we going to start to include the people who actually have lived it with the lived experience? That's how we're going to navigate through this, is including the people who have had both positive and negative experiences in the change room, on the ice, um, and all those things. So I, I just, I would really like to know their reasoning, and I would also like them to be a little bit more transparent and open to the idea of bringing in some people who like I said, have lived it and want to be part of the solution moving forward. And I just think Hockey Canada has to, has to do a better job taking accountability. They're essentially hiding from this news story and they ha- can't give anybody answers on how they came to this, why they came to this, where it came from. And it's left a lot of people wondering. And, you know, I just think that if you look at the the way Hockey Canada has been portrayed over the last year or two in the news, you would think that they would be stepping it up above a hundred times more than they have to make sure that, you know, new measures are in place. And for me, that's, you know, providing education and resources. Um, this is a Band-Aid solution, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. They think that this is going to make a significant impact, but it's not. It, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad. I have kids. Um, I have both sons and daughters. And you know, I, I don't really want my kids changing you know my young girls changing in a change room with boys and like that's my stance and i'm allowed to have that opinion 
And I, I just think that we need to do a better job really reflecting on, you know, what's happened in the past and how we're going to move through this. And to me, this is just not the answer. No, I think you're right. It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. That's what it feels like. And yeah, I think it's it's on Hockey Canada to, to better explain this to people. Uh, in the meantime, much more is mentioned. PuckSupport.com. Brady, really appreciate your perspective on all this. Thanks so much for joining us here. Thank you so much for having me. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Brady Leavold, uh, founder of Puck Support, uh, as mentioned, focusing on issues around mental health and inclusivity in the game. And look, these are important issues, and hockey's had its issues in the past, right? And, and some of the culture that has led to some pretty bad outcomes, we do need to address that. Uh, people do need to feel welcome. And yeah, I, I, you know, there have been issues around hazing and bullying. If you want to talk specifically about dressing room issues, that can and needs to be addressed. Uh, but this, I, I don't know what, what this is supposed to accomplish here. And to just sort of put it out basically in a memo and not communicate this to people, not explain this to people. Like Hockey Canada must have known, they had to have known that this was not going to, to go over well. This would seem strange. This would seem odd. People might not understand this. If you're going to do this, if you're convinced it's needed, you got to be at the forefront of saying, look, this is how it has to be and here's why. So it's not clear. Is this just about you know kids who aren't comfortable uh, changing in front of others? They they don't want to be seen, or is it somehow we're protecting people from things they don't want to see? I mean, should we just not have change rooms at all? Like, what what is the issue here we're trying to address? Uh, yeah, look, and I you know my kid's in uh, in U eighteen. He's seventeen years old, almost done minor hockey. So we've been through all this over the years. And you know, as younger age, you have parents in there tying skates and doing all of that. And most kids are are coming to the rink already kind of half dressed. And then as kids get a bit older, they're a little more independent. They're doing more of this on their own. So they come to the rink. You know, it gets to a point where kids are wearing their nice clothes, coming to games, and they're doing all that themselves. So the last year that I would have helped uh, coach would have been at least around addressing would have been, I guess it's not called Pee Wee anymore, U13, I guess it is. So second year, U13. And even then in Pee Wee AA, my son's team had two girls on the team and they got changed in a separate room. And then they would come in after everyone was dressed and the coach would do the talk. And, you know, all those things were, were dealt with. There was no issue there. Uh, and it was welcoming. We made sure it was. You know, these are both two talented players and they fit in well and boys on the team were were certainly supportive of them if there was anyone on any other team you know calling them names or singling them out you know the team would would rally around them so it was a real positive environment but sure there, there could be potential issues there you got to watch out for and yeah it made sense then that you know in terms of them getting dressed and you, you know you have those accommodations so wh- where's where's the issue here I'm a little puzzled by this, and that's the sense I'm getting. This is all of a sudden, now that it's hit the media, become a big talking point. But nobody knew about it before. <laughs> I don't know if it was, I'm trying to think, I think maybe it was CBC had the story first. Like, this wasn't some scoop. This was a policy that Hockey Canada posted, but it was hard to find. Uh, Hockey Calgary's president uh, says it wasn't communicated to him that he was like everybody else. He found out about this through the reports in the media. So that's not how you... you bring in something like this. So new research on an old question. When did the first humans arrive in North America? And I guess, how do we know? How do we determine that? Uh, And that can be difficult. We've had a pretty good sense up until recently of when that was. 
uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 to 16,000 years ago and discoveries around what's known as the, the Clovis people or the Clovis culture. But there have been signs, there have been hints, and maybe now there's proof that this actually goes back much further. And this all stems from some fossilized footprints that were found at White Sands National Park in New Mexico in 2021. And this initially caused quite a stir because it was posited that these footprints, which clearly came from a human, were somewhere between 20 and 23,000 years old. So far older than what we had known or assumed about a human presence in North America. So that caused quite a debate, as mentioned. But we've now got some new research published in the journal Science that confirms that finding. So again, how do we know this and what do we make of this? Well, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon uh, two of the authors uh, of this new paper. Joining us uh, here this afternoon is uh, Kathleen Springer and uh, Jeffrey Pagani, both research geologists with the U.S. Geological Survey, as mentioned, co-authors uh, of this important new paper. Kathleen, Jeffrey, great to have you both with us here. Welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Thanks. Uh, so yep, first thanks of all... Yeah, and maybe we can go to you first, uh, Kathleen. Just a bit of an overview here in terms of these footprints. Uh, what can you tell us? What do we need to know about these footprints? As mentioned, White Sands National Park in New Mexico is where they were found. Right. So, you know, what is amazing is that for over a decade, the presence of Pleistocene megafauna, things like mammoths and giant ground sloths, have been known to coexist with human footprints. So they are not, they're not bones. There's no bones really at White Sands National Park. These are all footprints um, on a playa in the national park there. And it, 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 it is a large international team of folks that kind of came together a couple of years ago. And we were part of this team. Jeff and I were asked specifically to come and help understand the context of these prints yeah. and get a handle on how old they are. Um, you know, when did these track makers and these humans live? And so that's what we did, and that's what the original study was in 2021, where we um, came up with the dates of 23 to 21,000 years ago. But, um, you know, it, you know, the process of science is, you know, sort of additive, and we knew that these dates, were much older than, as you mentioned, the Clovis culture, mm -hmm. um, quite a bit older. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we, we knew immediately that we were going to need to come at this with independent chronologic control and other independent, um, you know, dating methods. We were confident in the original ages, by the way, um, but we were at the same time still forging ahead um, with these multiple lines of evidence so that we could get um, you know, really consensus in the community, especially in the archaeologic community, because it really caused quite an uproar. Yeah, it did. And I mean, you know, you're turning some conventional wisdom on, on its head. So uh, let me put it to you, Jeff, because you've got the radiocarbon dating initially, which is pretty compelling evidence uh, of the, the age of these footprints. So where do you go from there? How do you build on that? Sure. So the, the, the original ages uh, were obtained from seeds from an aquatic plant that was living on the landscape. Uh, people were basically walking around, stepping on this plant. We actually pulled the seeds, a lot of some of the seeds right out of the footprints, which was which was really cool back then. But but aquatic plants can give ages uh, that are too old for various reasons. Uh, so in our case, we argued uh, that this wasn't um, happening, and we, we used uh, geologic evidence, hydro, the hydrologic setting, and even the ages themselves 
um, as as different lines of evidence. But we knew from the very onset that this was not going to be enough; that we were going to have to do more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the next the, in this current current study, we focused on two different techniques. One was radiocarbon dating of pollen, uh, pollen from terrestrial plants. So. Uh, this, these old wa- water effects that, that can affect aquatic plants aren't at bay or aren't, aren't at play anymore. Um, so we dated pollen, and we also used a technique called luminescence dating, which basically dates the last time quartz grains were subject to to sunlight. Um, now the cool cool thing is, you can you can argue and you can kind of poke holes in any one dating technique that's out there, or any single dating technique. But the convergence of all three dating techniques. Radiocarbon dating of seeds, radiocarbon dating of pollen, and luminescence dating is really strong. And in our case, all three techniques gave identical ages, which is just fantastic. How close to definitive would you say that is? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> as clo- as close as you can get. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that's a that's a really good question. Um, and it's you know when you have when you have different techniques that are. I mean, honestly, radiocarbon dating and luminescence are completely unrelated, right? One is based on decay of, of carbon. The other is buildup of luminescence properties in minerals. And when everything is telling you this, the, the, that in converging on the same age, plus we have all these other different lines of evidence, and we looked at the flora, the type of, type of pollen that we were dating, and it's nothing like what is out there today in white sands. It's, it's conifer trees, it's pine, it's spruce, it's fir, sagebrush. It all points to a last glacial maximum, you know, kind of a colder, wetter time. All of these different different uh, lines of evidence um, are really, really powerful together. Right, and Kathleen. What what can we draw in in terms of conclusions about uh, the footprints themselves? Understand the, these seem likely to have come from from a female. Is that correct? Well, at this particular site, there were sixty one prints that were analyzed initially, and the demographics actually show that the preponderance of those prints are um, kids. They're, you know, ages 9 to about 14, and the sort of reigning hypothesis is is that adults were doing more manual labor or or more skilled labor and that the teenagers were more fetchers for for the older people and that kids, you know, they just hang out and they're just tagging along with the bigger kids and they are going to leave proportionally larger percentage of prints um, to be preserved in the fossil record, and that's really what we're seeing at this one particular site. But I gotta say, at White Sands National Park, there are thousands <laughs> of human and megafaunal footprints, really all over the place. There, it's really remarkable. It's 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 singularly unique worldwide. So the question comes up then, I mean, if, if there were humans present, you know, 7,000 years prior to when we kind of assumed w- would have been the earliest, wh- where's the, the rest of the evidence? Should we find tools? Should we, should we be seeing more evidence that, that humans would have been inhabiting this, this area? Jeff, what about that side of it? Yeah, so the, the, the techniques that were used in this study uh, are really different than kind of traditional archaeological uh, right. techniques, right? Usually in archaeology, you're looking at stone tools, you're looking at bones that are worked or, or you know cut or whatever. Now we're looking at footprints at the surface, and in a, in some in, you know in, a, in an average lifetime, you might put down a couple hundred million prints. So the the footprints are out there. This is a new way of looking at archaeological evidence, and 
there are, you know, the, the, the Tula Rosa Basin, which is where White Sands is, it's huge, and it's big, and it's wide, and it's flat, and it's just gorgeous. But there are so many lake basins out there that are similar. And they, you know, during, the, during this time period that we're talking about, the last glacial maximum, there were lakes in all kinds of basins all over the western U.S. So it's really just a matter of starting to look at these other lake basins mm-hmm. for footprints, um, and, and we think this is, this is just, the, just the beginning. What kind of world would these these humans have been living in? What's so, what do we have in terms of geological evidence about the presence of other animals, mammals in in this area of the time? Well, the what at White Sands they have documented uh, mammoths. There are there are so many mammoth footprints you would be shocked. You can even see mammoth footprints in Google Earth. Oh, wow. No, no, what you're looking at? There's there's giant ground sloth. There's dire wolf. There's saber toothed cat. There's bears. Um, horses, camel, bison, um, and of course, people. So, I mean, so, and, and that the paleoignologists, which are these trackway experts that are part of this team, they have been able to discern these unbelievable behavioral interactions between humans and megafauna that's never been able to, been achieved anywhere before. That's the reason White Sands is so singular, u- unique, because footprints are a timestamp. And you actually can see on a planar surface this dance between humans and, in this one particular study, a giant ground sloth. And the people are approaching the sloth, and you see those footprints going up to this animal. The animal rears up on its hind legs, clearly annoyed because of the people, I guess. And then, and then you know, the people continue to, to follow this, this animal. And, you know, so... In, in just a, a footprint trackway surface, you are, they, they are able to tell this entire story, which is so evocative. And these people were either hunting or harassing, but they're just hanging out with the, I don't know, they, yeah. they could have been hunting this giant ground sloth. So there, there's any number of hypotheses that can go along with these kinds of interactions that are being documented. But that's the kind of world it was. It was a lake and a lake edge. Um, people are there and animals are there because there's water, um, there's resources, clearly. Um, other than that, we do not have their tools. We do not have habitation sites, um, but we have their footprints. Mm-hmm. And we know those footprints are a time stamp. And so what Jeff and I did was really, you know, participate in this whole effort to understand the context of those footprints and and this is the result of what we're talking about today that that people were in what is now southern new mexico 23 to 21 thousand years ago and that's pretty remarkable it's a big deal uh jeff what about the question of, of how they got there uh what, what do we know about the 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 geological record the the glacial record of that era does that give us any any clues yeah, it's it's really interesting that this is this time that, that we're talking about twenty three to twenty one thousand years ago. This is kind of smack dab in the middle of what we call the last glacial maximum. And at that time, there were huge ice sheets that covered all of Canada and the northern U.S. as far as far south as as Illinois, and they essentially blocked passage from Asia into the Americas at that time. And so these people that were here in New Mexico, they were here while these ice sheets were basically blocking passage, which means they had to come down earlier than the passage was blocked right they they had to they had to come here before the ice sheets uh kind of coalesced and, and stopped that route so when exactly that happened and how they got they got into uh north america 
um, is unclear. But we've got a, a, a one of our US, uh, USGS colleagues, Summer Pretorius, she's been working on um, basically uh, looking at ocean currents and sea ice uh, to try to develop windows of time when when conditions would have been good for people to ma- migrate down the coast. And one of her windows falls kind of right at this time period that we're talking about. So there's a lot of people doing a lot of really cool, cool work on this. Um, but, you know, our study really doesn't doesn't address any of those things directly. Right. But what it does is oh. it, is, it, it establishes that people really were here uh, in, in, in the continental U.S. Um, during the last glacial maximum, which is... Uh, which is, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, it is such an important and fascinating discovery, and hopefully we'll lead to, to many more uh, as we move forward here. But Kathleen, Jeff, thank you so much uh, to both of you for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having us. Yep, you bet. Thank you. All the best. There you go. Uh, two of the authors of this piece, you can find it at science.org if you want to uh, read the actual paper. And, I mean, it seems pretty conclusive, Right, so you get the original findings, which were compelling in, in their own way, but then to have three separate lines of evidence all pointing in that direction—that's that, that's a big deal. So um, anyway, that's Kathleen Springer, uh, Jeffrey Pagetti, both research geologists with the U.S. Geological Survey, co-authors of this new paper. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.